0: Well, if I haven't met you, my name is Wade. I get the joy, along with Chris, to pastor and partner um, with this awesome group of people in uh, the work of ministry. And I just want to reiterate, too, uh, as Chris and Bethany mentioned, that um, we had the opportunity this past week, um, Chris and I, along with our wives, to meet. And we do this every year where we go and we meet with all the other pastors and their wives who are part of the Soma family of churches. Uh, Soma is a word in Greek that means the body. Um, And so we are part of a network of churches that have churches not just in the United States, but all over the world. And so we got to sit um, and hear stories of what God is doing in and through the lives of his church and his people all throughout the world. Um, And I can tell you that as we sat there and we listened to these stories, um, we, can, we can just come back and say we are super thankful for Missio and super thankful for what God is doing in and through his church. And there's a lot more work to be done. And God is doing the work. And see, we're seeing churches planted. We're seeing men, women, and children understanding and hearing about the good news of Jesus and how he is transforming lives um, and so super thankful um, that we got to do that and thank you for allowing us to do that um, and just having that time away. We're, we're so glad to do that. So um, this morning we are going to be digging into a new series, as Chris mentioned, uh, called uh, Faith in the Flesh as we are looking at the book of James. So I'm going to invite you to stand and we're going to read just four verses this morning. And uh, we are going to take this book of James, five chapters, very, very slowly over the next several weeks because we really want to get into that. Um, And so if you need a Bible, we have some back there on the Connect table. They're our gift. Take them. They're free. Um, If you don't know where James is, it is in the New Testament towards the very back of your Bible. And uh, we're going to be looking at chapter one, and we're going to be reading verses one through four. This is God's word. And so, God, we are asking this morning, um, you give us ears to hear very clearly uh, what you want us to learn from your word. God, we are coming this morning, so many of us just wrestling with life so much that are just on our shoulders that are a burden to us. And so, God, this morning we are asking that you take that from us and help us just to sit and hear your incredible word. Teach us, God, through your spirit and may we see Jesus clearly in all that he is for us. Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and redeemer. In Christ's name, amen. All right, you guys can sit. Um, if, if you're lucky enough to wear glasses or contacts like me... Um, You probably can like remember like the first time you had to wear glasses or contacts like permanently, right? Um, I do. For me, it was my second year of teaching junior high science. Um, I was about 24 just a couple years ago, and um, I, I, up to that point, uh, I had only wore glasses really to drive at night specifically. But it really it dawned on me one day as I was teaching that it was time to wear glasses permanently, because I noticed in the back of my classroom there was smoke. And it was hovering around these two uh, notorious kids um, in my classroom, very big kids, I might add. And uh, in full disclosure, I really didn't actually see the smoke. I smelled it. Um, and I squinted. I was like, yeah, the smoke in the back of the classroom, I probably need to get back there. Um, so I, I run back there, and these two students had the, this wood... Uh, burning pen set. You ever seen one of those? And, and what they were doing is they were carving with this pen set, this wood burning pen set, their gang symbol into my science desk. Uh, and it, so it was the, at that time I realized I not only needed glasses to drive, I needed glasses um, to survive. <laughs> so um, I went and I, I got tested and I was uh, more blind than I thought. And, uh, you know, the, the, the lenses were a little bit thicker than I was used to. And after, you know, you get through that initial phase of kind of just feeling a little tipsy and, uh, you know, just it's weird, right, when you wear glasses for the first time. But, man, when I had them, it was like the blues were bluer. Greens were greener, you know. It's like I was looking at my students and go, wow, I had no idea you looked like that. Right? And so I was just like, wow, why didn't anybody tell me I could live like this? Right? And so it was like I was able to navigate my life a lot easier when I could see a lot clearer. And so as we navigate through this book of James, it's like James is inviting us to put on these glasses so that we will see ourselves and our circumstances and our world clearly, through the lens of faith. And this is a faith that James is saying affects every area of our lives. It's a faith that not only is taking root in our lives, but is taking fruit. In other words, James is concerned that we not only say we follow Jesus and that we have faith, but we actually live it out. And so we need to have a clear view of, of what life is. And if you're like me, chances are, you know, you're sitting in life and you go, wow, I really could really make sense of of things in my life right now that would really, really be helpful. I'm not real sure why, God, you're allowing this to happen in my life right now, but I'm looking for answers and I need to see clearly. And, And so as we go through the next several weeks in this book, it's our prayer and our hope that God would unveil to you what it is he wants for your life. And how he's transforming you to not only live and just exist, but to actually live in a life full of life. And so James kind of outlines that for us. And he says, put on our glasses, let's look At what it means to live life. And so what we're going to do is we're going to dig into uh, the text this morning. But before we do that, um, we want to go through what we call the ABCs of James. Okay, the ABC. So who's the author, A, background, characteristics. Okay, so verse 1. Author, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. So he identifies himself, James. Um, there's about seven people identified in the New Testament as James. And the best that we know is the James who's writing this is the younger half-brother of Jesus. Just let that sit for a second. How would you feel uh, following in the footsteps of Jesus as your sibling, Right? Dude, he's always perfect. I can never be as good as Jesus, right? You can imagine that, and so this James, um, we know as the younger brother of Jesus, he becomes a, a leader of the church in Jerusalem. So Jerusalem was the hub of Christianity. That is where the church actually was birthed. And so we see in the book of Acts that James is a leader in the church along with two other people known as Peter and John, who were apostles of Jesus. So a lot of times you'll read through the New Testament, especially in Acts of Peter, James, and John. It's that James. Okay? And so he's writing this book, this letter really is what it was, Around uh, early to mid-40s A.D., so not long after Jesus had been crucified and raised and ascended, uh, James writes this letter to the church um, uh, that was there originally in Jerusalem. And then not long after he writes this letter, probably in the early 60s, he's martyred for following Jesus. Okay? So that's a little bit about the, the author. So the background, look what he says, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ to the 12 tribes in the dispersion. So if you're familiar with the story, when you hear 12 tribes, what are you thinking of? Anybody? Anybody? Yeah, 12 tribes of Israel, those were the 12 patriarchs that God had chosen in the Old Testament to represent his people, and so those were the people that through whom God was going to bless the world, and by the time that James is writing this, the 12 tribes came to be known as the true people of God, not only Jews, but non-Jews who the Bible talks about as Gentiles, those who were followers of Jesus were a part of the true Israel, the 12 tribes. And so they were now in the dispersion. They, uh, there was a huge persecution going on for, of Christians at this time of, of James' letter. And so that they were, they were dispersed among the nations. And um, the, the, uh, the writer Luke writes in his book, Acts, uh, about this dispersion. I'm gonna read this for you. In Acts 11.19, Luke says that there were those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen. And they traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch. And so a little bit of background, Stephen was one of the very first martyrs. Uh, He was a follower of Jesus. He was stoned to death for following Jesus. And um, actually, he was stoned at the uh, hands of a man by the name of Saul, who later, if we know that story, Saul has this encounter with the risen Jesus. His name is changed. He becomes a man by the name of Paul, and he's one of the pillars of the church. Paul actually writes the majority of the New Testament. Okay? And so, because of this persecution, Christians are now dying. One of the reasons they're dying is because they're under the rule of Rome. And instead of saying Caesar is Lord, the Christians are now saying, no, we don't follow Caesar, we follow Jesus. Jesus is Lord. And so, therefore, Rome is killing Christians. As Paul was doing. Paul was a Jew, though, and so there were other Jews who said, Jesus is not the king, he's not the Messiah, you're an apostate, we're gonna persecute you as well. So these Jews in Jerusalem were being killed, they were being persecuted, and so they are now fleeing to all these areas of Palestine. I got a picture just so you kind of see a little bit of what that looks like of this map. That blue arrow there is Jerusalem. That is where all the Christians were huddled together. And then when this persecution arises, they start going all throughout Phoenicia, which is all up the coast there, in the green arrows. They go as far as Cyprus and Antioch, way north. So these Christians are now fleeing to cities that are not Christian. And so they've lost community. And so James is writing this letter to these people. Chances are they were probably a part of his church in Jerusalem, and now they've scattered. And James is saying, I care about you. I love you. I'm writing this letter. I know what you're enduring. Here's the the letter for you, okay? So that's a little bit of the background, characteristics, letter C. And don't worry, we're going to stop on letter P. Um, No, we won't. Characteristics. So James uh, is often uh, known as the Proverbs of the New Testament because there's so much wisdom that James writes in this just real pithy, little bits of wisdom for us that seem at first glance just to be kind of random. They're kind of just scattered out there. But as we learn, we're going to find out that James actually has a theme of his letter, and there is a purpose of what he's bringing into that. And so James was not written to give us this doctrinal uh, treatise of all the details of the life and death and resurrection of Jesus. That's not James' point and purpose for writing this. James' purpose for writing this letter is to help Christians as well as us today to know what does it mean to live faith in the everyday stuff of life. What does it mean to live faith in the flesh? And it was written to help believers understand how do I deal with the challenge of faith? The challenge of faith. In other words, if I say that I believe in Jesus, does my life match that? If I say I'm a follower, am I actually following Jesus? And in a world today of really lukewarm faith, a lot of pain, that's a challenge. It was a challenge then, it's a challenge now, and it's a challenge that will be in the future. And so James is hitting that challenge right on. It says this is the way we live. So let's dig into it. Verse 2, count it all joy, my brothers. And I want to stop right there. So whenever you see the word brothers, most often uh, it translated brothers in the ESV, okay? Um, culturally, it was written um, with men in mind who would take it to the family. However, the word here in the Greek means brothers and sisters, okay? So... James is writing to men and women of the church. So whenever you see that, think of brothers and sisters, okay? Just as an aside. Count it all joy, my brothers and sisters, when you meet trials of various kinds. So there's five chapters, and James starts his letter like this. It's like, couldn't you have maybe eased in a little bit Instead of starting the very beginning of your letter with, count it all joy when you meet trials of various kinds in your life. And uh, if you've grown up in the church, chances are you probably have memorized that verse, right? And it sounds super good until you are like in the middle of a trial. (laughs) And then you're like, oh yeah, I just kind of forgot that verse right there. And so our tendency is we read this and we kind of want to soften like the meaning behind it. Really, uh, James, maybe you didn't really mean what, you, what we read here. It's like there was maybe some, when it was translated from the original Greek into English, maybe it's more severe, okay? Well, I, ca- I can read a little Greek, um, and so I thought I'm going to go ahead and I'm going to look at these words, and I'm going to make sure that uh, they're translated correctly, right? Okay, so um, I look at a few of them. The word all in the Greek means all, uh, the word joy in the Greek means joy, an, in, an internal delight. All right, so um, two strikes right there. In fact, the whole phrase here actually means what it says. In fact, it's actually more severe in the Greek than what it is in the English. Okay, just to let you know, when he says count it, it's this idea of make this determination, this uh, for sure um, understanding and, and commitment. That's what count means. Count it so when you meet trials, I want you to be determined, this is the way it is. That's, that's kind of the effect of, of the Greek there. And then uh, the word meet, when you meet, it means to actually fall into trials so when you fall into a trial, and we can look at that even as a hardship. When you fall into a hardship, count it all joy. Have this internal delight when you fall into these trials. And he says of various kinds. The word various means multicolored. It's, uh, we, we translate that into English. We get our word polka dots. Which means that they're, so basically, James is saying, I want you to determine that when you fall into trials, you're going to count it all joy, because there's going to be a lot of different sizes and shapes and intensities of trials, so when you fall into them, count it all joy. Super exciting, right? Like, this is the way we want to start this series, right? So this is not me, this is James. I wouldn't probably have started it that way. Um, my thought is, I count it all joy when I escape trials. But James says, no, count it all joy when you fall into trials of all kinds, various kinds, from debt to disease, from loss of job to loss of life. Count it all joy. And for those of us who believe in Jesus, we look at that and we go, I don't get that. And those who might be sitting in here who you don't follow Jesus and you're looking at Christians, you're like, there's certainly no way I'm going to follow that. And we, we connect with that. I get that. You know, James, if nothing, is totally realistic. I mean, he is giving us a pretty good assessment of life, right? I mean, indeed, life is uh, full of ups and downs, good and bad. It makes me uh, think of the classic uh, A Tale of Two Cities by Charles Dickens. Remember how that starts? It was the best of times. It was the worst of times. It was light. It was darkness. We were on our road to heaven. We were on our road the opposite way. It's like, yeah, James has a pretty good grasp of what life is like, ups and downs, ups and downs. And so the challenge of faith is that if we say that we're a follower of Jesus, it's going to happen. You are going to meet trials. It's not if it's going to happen, it's when. Look what James says, count it all joy, my brothers and sisters, when you meet trials, not if. And the reality is you are either coming out of a trial, you're in one now, or you soon will be. That's the way life works. James is saying trials are inevitable. They're inevitable in our lives. They're inevitable. But there's something I think we need to really understand before we go on and, and really declare what James is not saying, because this is super important. James is not saying that the trial, which so often is broken and evil, that in and of itself, that's good. Death is not okay. Cancer is not okay. Divorce is not okay. That's brokenness. It's infected with sin that has hijacked every good and perfect gift of God. James is not saying that. That's super important. The other thing James is not saying is that we don't go looking for these trials in order to somehow earn favor or acceptance with God. Um, I can't tell you how many times in just being a pastor and years of counseling people that I feel, uh, or I shouldn't say I feel, but I, I hear stories of people who feel like unless they're suffering, they must not be doing something right for God. That is not true. That's a lie. So we just got that real clearly, what James is not saying. James isn't saying that we rejoice for suffering. We rejoice in suffering. Big difference. So that when we meet trials, when we fall into them, that's kind of important to know that definition. When we fall into it, we're not looking We're not looking for trials. We're not looking for suffering. We're not looking. But when we meet them, and we will, how will we respond? Trials are inevitable. Count it all joy. And that makes absolutely no sense. Unless there's a purpose for it. Right? So trials are not only inevitable, but trials also have a purpose, and that's what James tells us. Let's go on. He says that, um, for you know, count it all joy, my brothers and sisters, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. Okay. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. Now, before we really just talk about what is the whole purpose Of these trials, and how is it that we're able to count it joy? I think we need to step back and understand what it means that uh, our trials are tests that God allows in our life. And we're gonna learn in a couple of weeks that uh, James says that God doesn't tempt us, but He does test us. And there's a big difference, and we're not gonna go into that today, but we need to look at these hardships, these hard times in our life are tests that God uses to make us steadfast, okay? And so uh, the word testing in the Greek meant approval. And where this comes from is um, in the Near East, um, archaeologists have found that in ancient pottery, they would, they would unearth these pieces of pottery and there would be a mark on the bottom of of this pottery um, that would mean approval. It was a seal of approval. It was tested. That meant that it had, been, had gone through the fire of a furnace without cracking. And so those who made the pottery would actually put this seal on the bottom that said it's been tested, it's been approved. And that's what James is talking about here. Is that God allows these tests, these trials in our life, so that we would go through a furnace... Of refining and come out of it without any crack whatsoever. Approved by God, not because of anything we've done, but because of what He has done. And so, the idea that's super important to get here is that our tests that come into our life isn't to determine whether or not we have the faith but that the tests come in into our life to purify the faith we already have. And why is that important? Because if we live our lives always trying to have to prove ourselves, that in order for God to really have uh, like me or to embrace me or to accept me or to forgive me, then I have to prove myself. I have to do all these good things. That's called religion. Religion. It's not the good news, the gospel, that says because of of what Jesus has done, we are now accepted and reproved by God. And so God says, I love you, I'm going to test you, I'm going to refine and purify your faith so that you may become steadfast. Well, that solves it. That's worth all the trials in my life, right? Who wants to be steadfast? You know, you woke up this morning, you said to your friend or your, your, your spouse, you said, I cannot wait for a trial to come into our life so we can be steadfast. That's so good. Uh, I, that's what I'm telling my kids is they're wrestling with all this stuff in school and how hard it is and uh, school is hard and my oldest now is into girls and all that stuff. And I said, don't worry, it's making you steadfast. <laughs> yeah, right, dad. Yeah, absolutely. What, what does that mean? James, what are you talking about? What does that mean? Steadfast. Here's what this word means. It means staying power, strong constancy, endurance, stickability. Okay? I mean, again, James is a pretty good observer of life, right? I mean, think about steadfastness. Think about a young couple, right? They meet each other for the first time. Like, I mean, their opinion of each other um, is that, man, I can't live without this person, Uh, you know, love at first sight, and that's after date three, right? And so there's nothing that could be wrong with that person. Everything is good. And then that opinion of that person is soon tested when you start living life a little bit deeper with that person. That opinion is tested when trials come, and all of a sudden you're like, uh, she doesn't like the same things I do. She's like, his pairs are really odd. I don't think I can hang out with them. Wait a minute, he, he's pretty good looking. Do I really want to spend my entire life with her? And so... When trials come into this relationship, one of two things happen. It's either the relationship dissolves or the relationship becomes durable. And if the latter, chances are that will lead to the two committing to marry. And they make this covenant together that says, there's no one else but you. I'm going to live in the hardest times and the easiest times in richer and poorer, sickness and in health it always amazes me when I meet people. My parents are a good example who've been married for, you know, 30 plus, 40 years. And you have a conversation with them, they're not going to tell you that life and their marriage has been just bliss. If they are, they're lying. But that marriage and that relationship has stood the test has been durable, has, been, has a strong constancy. There's a stickability that has occurred at some level. And so that's what James is talking about. We can talk about, this is, this is a great illustration of life, but James isn't just talking about life. He's talking about the fact that our steadfastness has to be anchored, not in a human relationship. But it has to be anchored in a relationship with Christ, with Jesus Christ. That's where the steadfastness comes. Well, how does that work? How does that work? Well, let's, let's continue. Look at, look at verse 4. I I'm going to read it again. Count it all joy, my brothers and sisters, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect. Okay? When I read through that first, I missed the word and. That is super important. Why is that super important? Because it's telling us not only are you going to have steadfastness, but let this steadfastness do the work in you that it needs to do. Why is that important? Because For a while, we might be able to just endure. And a lot of us are trying that in our own strength. If I just try harder, if I just change, if my behavior changes, then everything will be okay. And it works for a while. But after a while, the temptation is to give in. And the temptation is to stop enduring. You're in a relationship and that person just doesn't know how to treat you right. You can change behavior for so long. And so James is saying that we need to let steadfastness work completely through us. Let it work completely through your life. Let it have its full effect. As you meet these trials... Trust that God is doing the work in you. Don't trust your spouse to do that work in your heart. Don't trust your job or money to be that which will do that work in you. Let God do the steadfastness. Let it have its full effect. Okay, that's great, James. I get it. Count it all joy when I meet these trials. I'm going to go ahead and just allow it to produce in me steadfastness. Okay, so what? So I'm constant, I'm durable. I mean, is that it? I mean, that's all? Finally. Finally. He gets to the end of that, and there's another part of this. Verse 2 again. Count it all joy, my brothers and sisters, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect. Let it work completely through your life. That you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Finally, this is the goal. This is the aim. This is why we count it all joy, so that we would be perfect and complete. Every human soul wants that. I want my life to be perfect. I want my life to be complete. I want to have it all. And the problem is so many of us are looking at the wrong things to bring that. But this is the goal. This is the aim. In fact, um, as Chris and I were talking about the overarching theme of James from chapter 1 all the way to the end of chapter 5, this is the whole theme of the book. Is that everything that happens to us, every trial every discouragement, every broken thing that happens in you, everything in life, good and bad, is to make you perfect. To make you complete, lacking in nothing. Every human soul wants that. We're created for it. The words perfect and complete in the Greek are very similar. But the word for Perfect is the Greek word teleos. Everybody say that. Telios. Telios. And it actually can mean whole. That we are to be whole and complete. Perfect and complete. Telios. That we may be telios. Lacking and nothing. James is saying this: that God allows trials these tests into our life. And he says, count it all joy because God is producing in you steadfastness through those trials in order that you would be whole and perfect and complete exactly as he's created you to be. And another way that we could say that is that wholeness only comes when the whole of our lives is wholly centered in Jesus. Wholeness can only come when the whole of our lives is wholly centered in Jesus. Well, what exactly, where are you getting that? How how do you know this? I, I just real quickly want to take us back to James real quickly and who he was Yes, we know we've established that James is the younger brother of Jesus, but if you were to trace James's history in the gospels, in the gospel of Mark, we've seen Mark chapter 3 that James along with his other siblings are going to this house to pull Jesus out of it because they think Jesus is crazy. James's brother Jesus is going around and he's healing people and he's casting out demons. And he's claiming to be God. And James is like, uh, sorry guys, Jesus is a little crazy. He's had a little bit too much wine to drink. Uh, we're going to pull him out of this house. And you try, you just kind of look at James's narrative arc throughout his story. And you basically see that he does not believe that Jesus is who he says he is. And then you go a little bit further and then Paul, the man we talked about, he writes this book, this letter called 1 Corinthians. And in it he starts talking about the gospel and he starts talking about the fact that Jesus had been killed and that his death was to satisfy God's wrath so that all who would believe in him would have eternal life. And Paul says that Jesus didn't stay in the grave, but that he rose from the grave, conquering death and sin and Satan and raised to new life to now give all those who would believe in him new life. And Paul is outlining this, and Paul says when Jesus was raised, he went and he saw all his disciples that he had spent three years with, and he appeared to all these men and women, and he also appeared to James. And we don't know what Jesus and James talked about, but it's this, this singled out section that Jesus actually came to his brother. And I can only imagine the conversation that probably took place when James saying, I, I didn't believe you. I, I didn't believe that you were the son of God. And now I see that the, the, the scars in your hands and I see that you were dead, but now you're alive And fast forward to Acts, now we see that James is now pastoring the church in Jerusalem. And then, ten years later after this letter, he, he is killed because he's following Jesus. The only way that James could even write something like this that we've been digging into is because he realized... That there was something true about who Jesus was. That Jesus was who he said he was, the King of Kings, the one who came to suffer for his people, to give his life for ours, to forgive us for our sins, that his blood would forgive us and wash us clean. Look what James, again, verse one, says about himself James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. James could have said, hey, I'm James, I'm Jesus' brother, listen to me. But he says, I'm a doulos. I'm a servant of Jesus. I'm a servant. That means, if you really dig into that, that means that I am subservient to him I follow him. I serve him. He is my ruler. He is my king. And something happened in James' life and in that interaction with Jesus that says suffering for Jesus is worth it. And the only way that we will even be able to take this verse and live it out and truly believe it is to know that Jesus Christ, who suffered for us, calls us to do the same, but guarantees that we will come out of it perfect and complete. And that's what James realizes. Now, the only way to perfection, the only way to teleos, is to be a servant. Another way to say it is the only way to have teleos is to be a doulos. And we all want that. The question is, where are we looking for the teleos in our lives? Are you looking to your kids to be your perfection? Because if you are, as soon as they disappoint you, it's going to destroy your life. What about your job? If I just have the perfect job, if I just make this the right amount of money, then things will be perfect. Then things will be right. But the problem is as soon as you lose your job, then what happens? The only way that we can count it all joy when things, trials of various kinds hit us is that we have a hope and a Savior who's not a myth, who isn't in a grave somewhere but has risen from the grave and is seated at the right hand of God the Father and says, I welcome you into my family if you would only believe. And I love you so much that even though these trials will scar you and even though these trials will destroy what you think is your life, don't worry, I am going to be there. I'm going to protect you, and I've promised that no matter what, you're going to come out of it whole. You're going to come out of it perfect, but you've got to trust me. You've got to trust me. Wholeness occurs when the whole of our lives are wholly centered in Jesus. Corey Ten Boom, who, um, along with her family, how they estimate uh, helped protect over 800 Jews from Nazi Germany. They, they housed them. Uh, she wrote a book called The Hiding Place. It's an amazing book, and I would really encourage you to read it. But she says in there that there is no pit so deep in our lives, but God is deeper still. See, the reality of it is we don't deny the pain and the hurt that trials bring us. And James isn't just saying, hey, just cavalier, it's okay. Count it all joy. No, that's not what he's saying. He's saying count it all joy because you know you have a Savior who suffered more than you can even imagine so that you might live. And in Him alone can you find perfection, and wholeness and completeness. Trust him. He's in the deep with you. No matter what you're going through, God is there. And he's saying, trust me. I love you so much, I sent my son to be your savior. Believe in him, believe in him. I'm with you through the trials. I'm gonna bring you out of it. I'm gonna create steadfastness. You're gonna endure it. God promises this. The apostle Paul, and I want to leave with this, writes in Philippians, one of his books, the book of joy, that many people call it, the Philippians, the book of joy. He says, I am sure of this, that God who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. He promises to see us come through. To make us perfect and whole. And because of that, we can count it joy. Because He's making us whole and He's making us complete. That's the joy. That God loves me and He's not giving up on me and He loves me so much, He's making me perfect. That's the joy when I lose my spouse. That has to be the joy when I'm diagnosed with cancer. Christ is our steadfastness. He's the true anchor of our soul. And wholeness can only come when the whole, every area of our life is wholly centered and given to him. He's making us a community of joy. We were sharing this this morning. He was making us a community of joy in a world of pain and suffering. And as we live in that joy, in the midst of that, people see Jesus in us. And they go, how on earth can you live like that in joy when all that's happening in your life? What do you have? And we introduce them to the king, the suffering servant, who says, I alone will make you whole and complete if you would just trust in me. Where are you looking for completion this morning? Where are you looking to be made perfect? And guarantee you, if it's not in Christ, it will fail. It will fail. Jesus is our king. That's why we gather on a Sunday morning to rehearse this story, to sing songs, and uh, to share evidences of grace. And the world looks at it and goes, that's really weird. Why do you do that? It's because we know that we serve a king who not only created us, but came to save us so that we may be whole. And if you do not know Jesus, if you don't know about that wholeness, that perfection, please talk to me. I'd love to talk to you more. I'd love to pray with you. I know Chris would. Any of our missional community leaders in here would do that. Don't leave until you come face to face with the Jesus who loves you. That's my plea this morning for you. Let's pray. God, we know that we can only be made whole when our whole lives are wholly centered in Jesus. God, we know that for us to count it all joy when we meet trials of various kinds, we can only do that by the power you give when our eyes are focused on Christ through the lens of faith. Help us to see clearly, Jesus, that you and you alone can bring life and perfection and wholeness because you are the perfect king. You are the perfect savior. Grant that we may be made whole. In your holy name we pray, amen.